0: Hello friends and welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with
1: Simon Chang and Dr. Ian Kaplan.
0: And today we have as a guest Dr. Eric Helms. Dr. Helms is a research fellow for strength and physique sports science. He's mentoring postgraduate students at the Auckland University of Technology where he studied for his second master's in sports nutrition and his Ph.D. in strength and conditioning. He's been a trainer since the early 2000s, so he's one of the OGs, the real OG. He coaches drug-free strength and physique competitors from recreational to world champions, and he's part-time at 3D Muscle Journey, of which he's a co-founder and the scientific advisor. Eric communicates sports science through his social media, podcasts, blogs, and conferences. He has books on nutrition and training called The Muscle and Strength Pyramids, which I love and I'm constantly recommending to uh, people who ask me online. He's also the co-founder and strength and research reviewer for monthly applications in strength sports, also known as Mass, which is an amazing tool for anyone looking to increase their knowledge on fitness and nutrition and health. They have new reviews every single month, including some uh, free lectures as well. As always, if you want to be entered to win some hybrid legacy swag, make sure that you screenshot this episode. Posted on your story. Tag hybrid unlimited and me at Steffi Cohen for a chance to be entered in this contest. Because guess what? It's the sickest swag in the game. Nobody, nobody will have a doper outfit than you, unless it's somebody who's also wearing hybrid legacy, to which you know you might have to ask someone who's wearing the coolest outfit in that particular scenario. Anyway. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Helms. Uh, it's a good one for anybody looking to understand nutrition and dieting better.
2: This episode is brought to you by Stay Classy Meats. Stay Classy Meats curates quality specialty meat from small batch ranchers and processors across the Northern Rockies. Check them out at stayclassymeats.com and use code HYBRID in all caps to get 10% off. This podcast episode is also brought to you by BEAM. Beam is committed to producing high-quality, natural, innovative wellness products trusted by some of the world's top professional athletes. Beam creates products to support four main categories, balance, performance, recovery, and sleep. These products are combined of both CBD and non-CBD ingredients. By tapping into how we function biologically, CBD can work to regulate pain, mood, appetite, anxiety, and inflammation. As a hybrid unlimited listener, you get 15% off your order with code HYBRID in all caps. So check them out, that's BEAM and use code HYBRID in all caps for 15% off.
0: I'm genuinely curious to know what you've been up to and how you've been spending your time and what you're working on and just catching up with an old friend, you know?
3: I'm honored. I'd love to. It's great to see you, too. It's great to be back.
0: So uh, so what's been going on? What have you been doing since the lockdown? What are you working on? What are you training for?
3: Yeah, so New Zealand is in a a unique position where we were the envy of the world for how well we didn't get COVID. And now, therefore, we don't seem to be in any rush to actually get a vaccine. So it means... uh, it's going to be a while before I can actually leave the country. Um, so that that's kind of the downside right now. And that's affected some things in interesting ways. So uh, USAPL Nationals just happened. Um, good chance that some of my lifters are going to be going to Worlds, but not a great chance that I'll be able to go there with them, which always uh, is, is a pain point. Um, so I would love to be able to do that. I haven't done an international speaking gig since March of 2020. So things are good here, but we're just, you know, isolated, uh, which is fine. Um, not that I'm complaining. People have had a lot harder than I, um, it's also affected some of my students who are trying to come out here to do their PhD, uh, or masters, uh, under me at AUT. Um, and so that's been an interesting kind of relationship that I've got with some of these students who are kind of in limbo where we're working on like their proposals and we're like, yeah, we're going to get you out here sometime in the next eight to 15 months. You know, no big deal, right? You can plan your your life around that. So that's been a little bit of a challenge. But besides that, everything has been great. Um, I am personally training in powerlifting and focused on that, really enjoying it. Um, I am uh, at a cool spot with all of my students who are in country in that they're all post-proposal collecting data and we're working on some really cool stuff. So I've got uh, students who are looking at different weight cutting methods for powerlifters. I've got students looking at um different uh stretching protocols to see if that can actually be beneficial to, to to strength performance. Um different configurations of like strength and power days to see if we can prime uh performance and enhance recovery. Just a lot of cool stuff at AUT which I'm really um privileged to be a part of. Um and then basically the regular stuff I'm uh putting out content for mass on a regular basis and uh, Chopping it up with Omar every week. So that's pretty much it.
0: That's amazing. I mean, you were set up in a pretty Good way in terms of surviving the lockdown the pandemic because you had You know the online mass review and you had i'm I'm assuming did you do any webinars?
3: Yeah, I did a lot and I actually got burned out on them That's that's it And, and also like anyone who's listening who had me on a webinar. I still appreciate it It doesn't mean I didn't have a good time. It's just it's not the same as being in person and getting to meet people and kind of vibe off that energy, connect people you haven't seen in a while. Like, like for example, I was in a a, a, a webinar with like 10 other people who I consider at least industry colleagues, if not friends. I never saw them, you know? Like, it, I, I, they were on the social media squares I shared. But for me, the experience was kind of like being on a, a blank podcast looking at my own PowerPoint clicking and talking and uh, as I think extroverted as I tend to be uh, I found those like draining and like you get excited for them and hyped up like okay I got to be on point and then you finish and you're in your living room it's just very different (laughs) so um, versus like grabbing dinner with all the participants and and you know hearing about you know their their journey with lifting and all that stuff afterwards so yeah I did a ton of webinars those were cool um but but man do i uh they they're not the same as in-person stuff that's that's for sure
0: For sure, yeah you just get a bunch of blank faces and all of all of them are muted you don't get any sort of feedback you have no idea if they're there they're listening they're enjoying yeah stuff
3: that's even if you get the faces because sometimes like depending on like the interaction like on zoom you do but on other ones it's just like blank and all i'm looking at is my own slideshow So <laughs> i was gonna
4: i was gonna say we did a webinar at the start this was around the time you guys did the rpe podcast um with hybrid so we did webinars and added my okay. first webinar and you can just see the amount of people but there's no faces nothing and again i'm just in my kitchen so i'm like cracking jokes and i'm like oh no one like i don't know if anyone's <laughs> laughing i don't know if people are laughing at me yeah. it was kind of awkward yeah
3: you, <laughs> you,
1: you speak speaking to the void yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. yeah
3: hey exactly so- you just you can just hear your own insecurity come back at you and nothing else yeah, That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, hey, just because you mentioned it, and I actually, I went through your Instagram to see like, you know, what you've been writing about, what you've been talking about on your most recent podcast and stuff. And just because you mentioned the uh, stretching. So there was one of the articles that you guys put out on mass on lifting and stretching, having similar effects on range of motion. And then the importance of stretching for longevity. Was that one another one?
3: You know, I I don't think we've had anything on longevity because uh, the only reason we care about longevity at mass is you have more time to hit PRs. But I uh, I, I do we did we, we did touch on it as like a uh, as a tool for enhancing range of motion and some of the I would actually be curious to hear your thoughts on this, Steffi, because you know being a, a physical therapy specialist, the like the industry has gone like. Stretching foam rolling is amazing to it does nothing and like the truth is obviously somewhere in between But I feel like that pendulum has just been swinging like Tarzan over the years
0: Yeah, I it's like anything, you know, I think especially in the strength sports and iron community um, Anything that really is outside of lifting heavy weights and grunting. It's almost like frowned upon if you do it You know, they mm. look down on you if you're stretching and whatnot. It's it's just not part of a powerlifter slash bodybuilders routine you know you see crossfitters using apps like romwad and and other um you know and other softwares they love stretching huh they yeah. love stretching <laughs> yeah but you don't see bodybuilders and, yeah. and, and uh, powerlifters use it at all and you know there's an obvious consequence to having a decreased range of motion not only for your lifts you know that can they can set off like a whole chain of negative uh negative consequences if you don't have the range of motion the first example i can think about is having lack of range of external rotation in your shoulders and the effects that it can have on your elbow for example or or Mm -hmm. the increased risk that it might have on you tearing your biceps you know because you don't have enough supination pronation it's coming from from other places where it shouldn't be coming from so that alone i mean there's there's obvious clear benefits to just making sure that your your machine is well oiled you know and you're you're able to access ranges that normal human beings should Mm -hmm. have access to
3: yeah so yeah i think the um the 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 piece that uh i think greg greg's actually want to review that article but it was quite good because greg's always been not someone who's gotten caught up in either one of those pendulum swings um while i think I was relatively, there was a point when I was semi-anti-stretching, um, just because of the data was accumulating on pretty aggressive stretching, like immediately before strength or power training, uh, having a negative effect on performance, which in retrospect, duh, but, um, <laughs> but like it, for one, I don't think that's often how it's used. And for two, that doesn't mean that it doesn't still act as a, as a easy low hanging fruit, uh, tool to enhance range of motion. Um. And then when I got into Olympic weightlifting, um, that was – and being an immobile guy in his 30s starting in Olympic weightlifting, all the arguments about, well, why don't you just do the lift to a full range of motion because uh, that, you know, if you, could, if you train through it, it gets you the same thing. I'm like, well, I can't actually do a, a, like an a overhead squat with a dowel right now, so how do I access that range of motion without doing some shoulder flexion stretching? Um, and that was honestly the only way that I could actually train in the right positions or my semi-close approximation to it, uh, especially like when I'm jerking, was to do some serious stretching before uh, training, um, despite that being contraindicated. So it's it's one of those things, it's like two things can be true at the same time. It is true that lifting, at least for many muscle groups, will produce a similar range of motion increase that stretching will, because It is stretching, like if if you sit down in a squat and you consider that a stretch, if you put a barbell on your back, it doesn't like change it, you know, it just makes it loaded. But at the same time, you can't load a pattern that you can't access, but you may be able to do some assisted stretching to get access to it that then load it. And I think that's, that's like one level of complexity above what can exist on Instagram and actually catch hold, so that's where we're at <laughs>
0: yeah i think and in, in order to to you appropriately use stretching for the purpose of functionality for lifting more you know it's important to make the distinction between strength stability and mobility my friend jordan shallow mm. talks about that a lot so if you're able you know once you're able to access that range of motion like you were saying maybe it's through passive stretching active stretching a combination of them two then you can work on that range of motion, you can you know, essentially train your brain to so it knows that it's a safe position that you're in, and you train the stability and the strength in that. So I can't remember who said this, but it was at the beginning, before I even gone to PT school, but somebody used the analogy of that if you don't strengthen or learn how to control the newly found range of motion, mm-hmm. it's like typing a super lengthy Word document and never clicking save. And that kind of mm, like stuck with me. That's a great cook thing. Great cook, yeah, yeah. That kind of like stuck with me through the years. It made so much sense. So it's like, as long as you're, you know, nothing is good, good or bad. It's just are you using it for the right purpose and are you re- using it in the right times and at the right frequency and right duration and for the right goal, right?
3: Well said. No, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. especially
4: with with something like powerlifting and weightlifting. Like you went to two extremes. Where for powerlifting you need a certain amount of tightness to obviously produce force. Like if you're extremely mobile, as mobile as someone who is an Olympic weightlifter, or even gymnast, it's going to be harder to produce that force. Whereas like weightlifting, you actually need to be a certain, to be able to access that range of motion to do those lifts. And something I find interesting, even with the studies, it's research of showing stretching before lifting. Yeah, you're producing more force. You're going to uh, lift essentially less. But if, what if in one case, you're lifting but not to depth but then you need to stretch and be able to access that range to lift to depth of like yeah you're going to be lifting less when it's past depth but you're now lifting to competition standard whereas before you might have been doing a quarter squat if you weren't doing you know those mobility drills or whatever you're doing so it's like yeah you're lifting less but now you're lifting appropriate to access that full range obviously that's going to help with hypertrophy and then obviously then you're just lifting to competition standard. Yeah. So, it yeah, you know, it kind like, of depends really, right? Absolutely. It's As like, you said, it's somewhere in the yeah, middle. Yeah, you
3: lifted more weights, but that's, that's not fun. the lift, <laughs> so absolutely. And I think I think that's a really important distinction. One thing, um, my, my my student, specifically looking at this, she's finishing her PhD probably this year. Her name is Alyssa Joy Spence, shout out. Um, and she's a, a very good power lifter. Um, and uh, she is also a very good academic. And we were talking about, because we we've done some testing where we've looked at um, ranges of motion at different joints. We did goniometry and strength testing in both powerlifters and resistance trained non-powerlifters. And there are relationships in some cases with strength and range of motion, but not others, and not for necessarily all movements, and not for both sexes. So there's a lot of nuance here. It's like, if you think about it, um, yeah, not everyone has that kind of whole, full hip flexion range and dorsiflexion range like you're talking about to hit a deep squat but who doesn't have the shoulder mobility to do an arched back touch the chest bench press you know like that's not typically like if you look at the joint range of motion about the shoulder you're, there's very few people who are going to be like nope can't get it down to the chest you know but there are, are definitely people who won't be able to sit into a, a competition depth squat so you have to consider like Should we expect the same relationships between bench press strength and shoulder range of motion that we see in, say, hip or knee range of motion for the squat? And the answer is probably not. And there's still more work to be done here. So, yeah. And that's expecting a lot of people to
1: understand the limits of the generalizability of research findings.
3: And that's That's why why I have have a (laughs) child.
0: Um, Hey, I wanna change gears a little bit and get into uh, some nutrition questions that I had for you. Um, You know, I was thinking about my own journey as a professional dieter in (laughs) weight-restricted sports. And you know, I have an interesting trajectory in terms of, so I went from having so much body dysmorphia and and such an unhealthy relationship with food, binge eating, you know, trying to make myself bulimic, just all these awful things that happen during your teenage years. To, I, so I worked with Lane Norton in my, with my nutrition for about six months and started understanding flexible dieting, start, started understanding energy balance and macros. And that, you know, equipped me with the knowledge that I needed to just really fully understand dieting and, and take control uh, of my weight, essentially in my relationship mm. with food to a point where, almost 10 years later, I'm so dialed in and so good at just one, knowing how much I need to eat in order to maintain my weight or to lose weight or to gain weight and just auto-regulating what I eat on a daily basis. Like I I know if I have a heavy, I know what a heavy meal is. I know what a light meal is. I know when I've had enough or when I haven't had enough and I know how to adjust appropriately um, as the day goes by or as the days go by or the weeks go by. Uh, if I have to manipulate my weight in any way. Um, I'm a little bit out of the research nutrition realm since I haven't done it in a long time. So I wanted to touch on um, developing nutritional competence and what you talk mm. about quantitative versus qualitative uh, data and how to use it. Uh, and And I just want to know, like in your professional opinion, how do you how do you take a client who maybe, Either has been stuck in their own ways, and the reason why I'm asking is because we started trying to work with a bunch of um, uh, combat sport athletes, and it's interesting because we're at a point we're entering that the new space, and it they seem to be at a point where kind of it was very similar to powerlifters in their old their old ways before science permeated into the sport. They are at that point where they've been doing something for such a long time. The methods for weight cutting are so outdated. They don't have an understanding about nutrition whatsoever, energy balance. Like They're still stuck on fat diets, and it's really hard to get them out of there. So my question, I rambled for a long time, but I guess my question is, how do you get somebody, what what would you do if you had somebody who has very limited knowledge on uh, dieting, and nutrition in general, and how do you get them to a point where, where they're competent enough so that they don't have to be so anal and tracking every single thing that they eat?
3: No, that is that's that is a great question, and it's one of those very difficult ones to answer because what I've learned over the years in working with people and also reading research that is um, a little outside of the normal line that I read as I've come into contact with stuff on like weight-neutral strategies and differences in athletes and general population folks and the different challenges with long-term maintenance of weight loss versus actual just weight loss Um is been that it really depends on where you start so If you've got someone like the situation you're talking about where they are ingrained in a certain culture Related to nutritional manipulation and they have beliefs uh, that, that may be incorrect or at least limiting um, that you have to take a very different approach than you would with someone who's, let's say, like a blank slate, you know. Uh, likewise, the approach you might take with someone who has a history of disordered or full-blown deceding orders, uh, diseating orders, wow, eating disorders, um, a <laughs> little, little less dexic there, sorry, uh, is would be very different to someone, again, who is, who is a bit more of a blank slate. So I think the way I used to operate, and this is an example of how not to do it, is, okay, everyone gets kind of funneled into the same, what I think is still healthy and good strategy of, I'll teach you about nutrition and macros, tracking them, and then we can back off of tracking a little bit. Um, And this was kind of a very, I would say, like evidence-based, kind of macro-centric view of, of how do we get to someone being less anal and, and, and more able to auto-regulate, like you were saying, Steffi. And, and the belief system I had was that, okay, well, they have to understand energy balance, they have to track, and they have to be able to kind of be like Neo and see the zeros and ones behind food, and then they can back off and not track. But what I've come to learn is that some people, um, the process of tracking itself can do more harm than good. And instead, what I need to do is to try to get them to use more qualitative methods and get them more in tune with their hunger and fullness. Um, And that needs to kind of be like a viable strategy because the data would suggest, contrary to my kind of hypothesis and the way I see it going, is that in many people, um, and especially in people who are struggling with some of these disordered eating patterns, um, that it is not necessarily going towards a more accurate control or kind of the flexible restraint pathway that then enables them to back off, but it is kind of starting with okay, look, let's not try to manipulate weight. Uh, let's let's do some things that actually allow you to just focus on sensations, uh, you know, your your body uh, and actually change your your some of your body image, so that we can have this this weight neutral period to kind of like heal it for, for lack of a better uh word from where you were to then move forward and i think that's something that um the, the fact that there are people who can find the ability to maintain weight or maybe maybe even unintentionally lose weight by not tracking and focusing on just how they feel and auto regulation it's probably its truest sense um is a different pathway to get somewhere that I I just didn't even conceive of. So I think that's a big change. As far as does that apply to combat sport athletes? Absolutely not because they're in a weight class restricted sport. So the the interesting thing is, all right, so what's in front of me? What have they been doing and how do I approach this? So when I'm dealing with someone, say, for example, who is not competing in a sport and maybe has body composition goals, that's a very different conversation than I do when I'm dealing with a power lifter or potentially a combat athlete. Anyone who has to make weight or a physique athlete to take it really extreme who has to be at a certain look. Um, and in those cases, you you do have to do some of that nutritional education. Um, so if there is going to be weight manipulation, if there's going to be body composition manipulation purposefully, and that is the the end goal, then I think it's important people to realize that there's a difference between healthy nutrition and performance nutrition. And even when you do performance nutrition in the least harmful way, you might be keeping someone in a situation where they're always carrying a little bit of diet fatigue and maybe not the healthiest relationship with food. Um, so, So for example, let's say you've got one of these fighters and they don't have a great relationship with food. They've got some PTSD around making weight multiple, multiple times. um, And they also feel locked into doing it a certain way because that's what's always worked. Uh, They've won some fights and they get incredible anxiety doing something different. You have to take this very slow graduated approach, you know. Um, you can't just change their weight cut completely and be like, look, you know, you don't you don't need to lose this much weight. Can we move up a weight class and, and change everything all at once? Because that'll create so much stress you'll never get the buy-in. And they'll go work with some of the nutritionist who's happy to take their money and screw them over. So I can think of many times early on, because like to parallel what you were saying, Steffi, this is like how bodybuilding or powerlifting was like a decade ago, right? Or maybe even longer. When I think of some of the first clients I worked with, I remember working with a, a bodybuilder. Who competed at under 200 pounds but was eating 400 grams of protein a day I wanted them to eat 200 grams of protein a day I didn't put in their spreadsheet 200 grams of protein I put 350 and they were like oh I don't know about this you know like that's a 50 gram drop and I'm like yeah well we can get a little more carbohydrate we can get some more fat how do you feel let's just try it out you know uh, and then once that was good and they're like yeah that was really good actually and I've been really enjoying you know food instead of just eating meat and protein shakes um, like, okay, cool. You, you want to try going a little bit further? And now it's their idea, you know? So, so I eventually got this person, didn't all, get them all the way down to 200, but I got them into the 200s. Uh, and, and that was kind of that process. So it, it does need to be stepwise. It does need to be gradual. It needs to be very much based on, on where they're at. Um, so that was a specific example, but now I'll take a step back and talk about some of the systems I have where I try to walk people down different paths to get to semi the same place. So, for example, if someone is in the situation where they need to have quantitative changes to their nutrition to make weight or, uh, you know, change their body composition, it does start with a period of education. And that education is normally just about the basics of energy balance, the function of the macronutrients, um, and why and how body mass changes and how do we support training. And then from there, the next step is, well, okay. Let's actually work on fitting this into your life. And some of the best tools that I've seen uh, when you do have to make these quantitative changes in someone is to actually have them create their own nutrition plan. So sit down with them and they go, all right, I want you to make a meal plan for yourself. This gets around the issue of you're not an RD in most cases, you're not technically allowed to write someone a nutrition plan, but they can write down the foods they eat and you can sit there and mentor them through the process of, okay, how do I make this uh, fit a 2500 calorie-ish target Hit this amount of protein And have mostly carbohydrate and a little bit of fat Just it was a random example And then when they go through that And actually go, oh no, that's too much fat i got to erase that, cross that out and change it That homework you're giving them And guiding them through um, that they, Creating their own meal plan Is one of the most instructive things And then having them follow it for a while You know, so that, that's just one of many tools But then they'll find like Oh, this is getting monotonous, I want to change it And then you go, all right, well, how about this weekend? How about we simply try, uh, don't have a meal plan. Just go to the grocery store, eat what you want. Even I want you to go out the Subway or a few like easy restaurants where it's all portioned out for you. So they can get the idea of freewheeling a little bit more. So they kind of move from like the shallow end to, you know, out of the kiddie pool into the deep end, you know. So you're teaching them how to swim. They learn how to do it. And that really gets, helps them understand the numbers. For someone else though. If the, if the relationship with tracking numbers has been a negative for them and it tends to trigger disordered eating behavior or anxiety, you can take a very different approach. Um, you, can, you can say, hey, here's what your plate should look like, right? We're going to have kind of this proportion of meat, uh, this proportion or, or le- a lean protein, I should say, to give it a little more inclusivity, uh, this proportion of carbohydrates and veggies and then some added fats. Um, we want to have three of those a day and how about a protein shake on days you train? And then I want your satiety to guide, like, how high on the plate do you pile those portions, right? Um, And now you can teach them something like a 1 to 10 hunger scale. So you have them actually rating their their hunger pre-meal and then rating their satiety post-meal. And you do that for a while to get a baseline. And then you can actually encourage them to hit certain targets. So, for example, on a 1 to 10 hunger scale, if you're between, say... Three to seven or four to six, somewhere in the middle, you're probably going to be weight stable if we're eating mostly whole foods and if you're sufficiently active. Now we want to have you gain a little bit of weight, we just shift it up a little bit. You know, you're you're uh, from a three to six, now you're a, a four to seven, so that you're you're never that hungry before meals and you're a little full afterwards. So that's a di- very different approach you could take um, to where you're giving them a more internal cue guided system in that in that scenario versus that external one because you're trying to get to an unsustainable body composition, or you're trying to get them to to compete in a in a weight class that is not something they can walk around in healthily. Yeah.
0: What are um What are some of the other qualitative measurements that you use? You mentioned you mentioned uh, the hunger scale, you know your sensations. What else?
3: That's the big one. Yeah. So satiety and hunger is is definitely the big one. Um, I think some other uh, qualitative or let's say non external cues that I will use is simply um, manipulating mindfulness. So having them do things like, you know, when I'm eating, I'm just eating. Uh, I'm trying to be aware and present during the meal. There's there's a, a fair amount of research on mindfulness and eating where basically you're making the person more attentive to what they're eating because you can tell someone, I want you to track your hunger and satiety and not talk about that at all. And it might not work very well because they're still watching YouTube while they eat. And then they go, Oh, like, oh, how hungry am I? You know, like, so you, to some degree, you have to ask them to change their behaviors uh, or change their environment so that they can actually enact those behaviors. So, um, being more present at meals is an important one. Um, some more qualitative elements are you can give them macros, you know, if they're cool with that uh, and, and, and targets and all that. But I mentioned earlier, if they're sufficiently active, eat, if they're eating whole foods, this will work. But what we see, like, for example, Kevin Hall did a great study um, where in a metabolic ward, he gave people matched diets that were either ultra-processed or uh, whole foods, and they could eat ad libitum as much as they wanted. And without really noticing a difference, the folks in the ultra-processed diet ate, ate into a 500-calorie surplus. So the reality is, is that when you have foods that are uh, very palatable, easy to eat and consume, uh, you consume them faster, and you very quickly and easily are able to eat past your satiety signals because of the hedonic signaling that you get from from that level of satiety and when you look at uh, non-processed whole food diets um, even of the same macro breakdown um, you will see that people will often get into an unintentional caloric deficit or eat around maintenance more easily because the weight of the food is so much more you know like a pound of broccoli is almost nothing you know so there's an element of the energy density and also just the time it takes to get through it, and the, uh, the time to digestion is a lot slower as you have more fiber, water bulk, and there's just a lot more for your body to do with it. So some of the things you have to do is to create um, qualitative food choices or more qualitative food choices, adding in fruits and vegetables, slightly higher protein diet to where satiety and hunger signaling are more regulated before you can even start to track them. There's also data on what what is called the J-shaped curve uh, of satiety and body weight regulation as it relates to your activity levels. So this goes all the way back to early research where they looked at Bengali mill workers and they looked at the the office managers and then people on the floor. And that J-shaped curve is showing that the sedentary office workers, the managers, were eating the same amount as the people on the floor with the most active jobs, but they weighed more and they were overweight because they were sedentary. So being sedentary seems to dysregulate hunger and satiety while well, you have to be at least what back then they would describe as light active, what we would describe as pretty high activity in the modern world, uh, before you start to see that, that body weight energy regulation to where everyone in the factory was similar weight on average, even though they had scaled their energy intake to their activity, showing that they were coupling their uh, energy intake with their energy requirements. And that doesn't happen when you're sedentary. So you do have to get people moving. And you do have to get people eating mostly whole foods, not to say they can't have a Snickers bar if they don't want You don't want to restrict them either. And then some of those internal guidance cues can work. And I think one one final thing I'll say before I'll shut up on this is that we often assume when we're working with athletes that they don't have that sedentary thing because they lift weights. But I mean, anyone who does online coaching, like you might lift six days a week and that's maybe let's say a total of 10 hours of training but the rest of the time you're sitting on your butt and if you actually look at your step count most days you're at like 5000 on average that's still kind of sedentary and there's data to suggest you might not be on the right part of that curve so say, say again
0: 5000 was a generous amount
3: yes that's if you're training almost every day and like you load a lot of plates from across the room but the yeah like it's it's very easy to be a sedentary lifter these days
2: This episode is brought to you by stay classy meats stay classy meats curates quality specialty meat from small batch ranchers and processors across the northern rockies they are an athlete focused meat company Uh, always never ever no hormones no antibiotics they source from ranchers who are for the animals to free range graze in low stress environments on nutrient rich regenerative grass montana is known for having very productive farmland and the nutrient-rich grass consumed by the animals is passed on to us. They cater to athletes who require the best quality products to put in their bodies. Nutrition is the base of our existence. The better the quality of the inputs, the less stressed out our bodies will be, and the more efficient they will run. Quality, convenience, small batch. That's Stay Classy Meats. Check them out at stayclassymeats.com and use code HYBRID in all caps to get 10% off. This podcast episode is also brought to you by BEAM. BEAM is committed to producing high quality, natural, innovative wellness products trusted by some of the world's top professional athletes. BEAM creates products to support four main categories, balance, performance, recovery, and sleep. These products are combined of both CBD and non-CBD ingredients. By tapping into how we function biologically, CBD can work to regulate pain, mood, appetite, anxiety, and inflammation. As a Hybrid Unlimited listener, you get 15% off your order with code HYBRID in all caps. So check them out. That's BEAM and use code HYBRID in all caps for 15% off.
4: Yeah, I was going to say I love the hunger fullness scale. So I've watched your lecture on mass where you talk about the athlete's plate and the hunger and fullness scale. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen the Steve Taylor hunger fullness. That was a couple of years ago. But we've used those internal cues a lot even if people are tracking because mm. just transitioning away I mean that was the lecture you had to transitioning yeah. away from tracking you can see that people are so used to external cues and they don't know anything internally like they're tracking and they're saying I am I should be hungry I should be eating this amount but they don't know if they're hungry they don't know if they're full they're just eating it because you know their app is saying eat this amount so yeah you know something we've been doing a lot is using that hunger and fullness scale even if people are tracking or just using that again if people have never tracked before it doesn't really fit their lifestyle again teaching them and because we we know that hunger really comes in waves and it's not necessarily linear, linear and a lot of people just don't understand that you know they get mm-hmm. hungry and right away it's it's an emergency whereas in fact you know we can go to 2 hours or so and it's like that hunger is going to fade whether we eat or not so i think that that's I Yeah, that Mm. portion or that that scale, as simple as it is, is, you know, rating your hunger from one to 10 and like asking yourself and mindfulness can relate in that way is so important because I mean, it's just so empowering because if you are have to skip a meal or something, you know, it's not the end of the world, your hunger is not going to get worse. Or if you have a really if you have a really or a harder weight cut, especially in combat sports. You know, you know, after a while that hunger is going to fade or and you don't need to eat something right away or you can essentially wait it out and have that meal that you want it to have rather than it be something more emotional and, and going towards a fast food restaurant or something like that. But yeah, I just I really like the, that scale and then just that the, the athlete plate method, whereas, you know, you're teaching mm-hmm. them X amount of protein here, um, carbohydrates here if you wanted to lean out more, have more more vegetables or something, less less starchy carbs, stuff like that. It's super basic. And I think, I mean, Leighton Norton always talks about zealots. And I think, you know, in, in a way we've almost transitioned, especially in powerlifting, to tracking zealots. It's yes. you have to track to lose weight, you know, especially bodybuilding. You have to track to lose weight. So it's almost like we're essentially becoming tracking zealots. Like this is the only way to do it. Whereas now it's like oh there are behaviors that that can align with it and that we can teach and you don't necessarily need to track and you can still teach the educational portion through again like portion sizes, internal cues and just you know, overall educating people on, on macronutrients but without actually tracking.
0: That's the most interesting thing for me about that is cause the last time that I dieted was like really hard was 10 years ago with Lane and It's interesting to see how the transition from tracking super strictly, and that being the only way that you could lose weight, to this super flexible approach centered on behaviors and and habits and your relationship with food and mindfulness. It's just how did we how how did that happen? Like how did what's the mm. next thing? Yeah, what's gonna be the next thing? I mean, because dude, (laughs) I remember even like doing reverse dieting. And how it was like, okay, every week we're gonna increase your carbs by five grams.
3: (laughs) Yeah. What's up with that? Not six grams, not four grams. Yeah. We became that which we hated.
4: (laughs) We called it flexible dieting because we can fit in a donut now. But in reality, you're stuck to these three numbers and you have to eat the exact same amount every day. So there's no flexibility there because, again, you're just stuck to these three numbers. And because the numbers are so rigid, you ended up formulating a self-made meal plan anyways so you, you're essentially doing a meal plan you have no flexibility whereas now we're seeing a lot more protein targets minimum protein targets uh, calorie ranges and so. where e- do
0: we stand with that
4: i think it's transitioning in a better way in terms of calorie ranges protein minimums and then just overall transitioning again away from tracking and also just flexibility in terms of you can eat a different amount each day because flexible dieting is, again, it's not necessarily just in a way of foods, but also the mm. amount you're eating per day. Because say if one day you don't eat as much or one day you have a party and you wanna eat a little bit more, it's like that's flexible in terms of your calorie range, not just the the numbers. I think, you know, a couple of years ago it was strict numbers and now it's actually turning to what flexibility should be.
0: So it doesn't matter? It, like, it doesn't matter that much?
3: Well, I think, I think we're, the, the way it needs to go is instead of like, we don't want to pull the whole, oh shit, tracking's canceled now. You know, like that's the way we typically go, you know, in the fitness industry. I think instead we really want to try to preserve tracking as a tool, but to understand that it, it probably shouldn't be a lifestyle, you know, um, which is where we got. And I think. Yeah, Steffi, I think we're basically watching the eating disorder recovery of the whole industry, um, which is why it, it went from like, this is flexible. I swear to God, it's flexible. It's like, wait, I have to bring a scale with me everywhere. Like, well, it's more flexible than I only ate five foods, you know. So it's like it's a progression um, from where we had li- like literally you have three protein options, uh, you know, like three carb options. And then it has to be brown. You have to have brown potatoes. Why can't you have a white potato? I don't know. It's sweet potatoes better because, you know, processed Processed bread is brown, so therefore that's the only good color. It's like what? That's like food racism. It doesn't even make any sense. And so, like, we had these incredibly arbitrary rules that were driving us towards some pretty unhealthy outcomes and and poorer performance. Um, then we went, okay, hey, tracking. All of a sudden, it's freed us from the the, the cages of, of of our disordered eating. And it's like, well, not not really. Like, I ran out of batteries in my scale and I just had a like a breakdown. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and and now we're starting to go, oh, well, we actually have some ability to regulate energy intake um, with some other things and we can learn about this stuff. So I think w- what you were saying is actually really important in that, like, these methods don't stand necessarily in opposition to tracking. The problem is, is when tracking supplants, because tracking is essentially an external cue, right? It's saying... I'm not worried about how hungry I am or what's going on. I have a target, and I'm an athlete, goddammit. I'm going to hit this 250-gram carb target come hell or high water because I'm I'm hardcore, right? Um, And now we're taking a step and going, well, how about we track what you eat, but maybe the decision on how much to eat should be based on something that is tied to your your internal signals like your hunger and satiety if you're active and if you're eating healthy foods and if you have good body awareness which are all things we probably want in our clients should probably be somewhat related to your energy expenditure and your goals and our energy expenditure changes every day so why are we always hitting 250 grams you know so the idea of having uh you know tracking but that not having that that being a, a a data metric rather than the entire goal is something that I think most people don't talk about. It's either tracking, or I take this more, uh, you know, internally cue guided approach. So it's not that it doesn't matter by any means. I think, I think Steffi, it's that tracking should be used as a tool when you have a goal that is something that is likely unsustainable or requires a level of precision that you don't want to leave to ch- not to chance, but that you don't want to leave to these other systems. While long term health, a healthy relationship, what you do in the off season, um, when you're multiple months out from a competition should be something that doesn't incur stress so that you have more of that bucket of, of stress management potential to apply to hard training or other stuff. Um, so you're not carrying this kind of cognitive burden constantly of being like all about your nutrition. So that's kind of how I see it. Um, and I think to go back to the whole thing of like, what is flexible when we look at the actual data on flexible restraint versus rigid restraint, that comes down to the mindset of the individual so that even while they are tracking, they understand uh, the, the kind of bigger picture. They're not looking at it from a black and white view because you can take two people who track macros and one of them can be incredibly rigid and one of them can be incredibly flexible. So we're understanding that seeing the whole pie as the method is inherently limiting to the conversation when in reality, we need to look at our kind of emotional relationship with food as whether that's flexible or rigid and then we can apply the method that's most useful to the given situation for the person where they're at in their own progression and that's so it, it becomes this very individualized approach uh, if, if you're doing it right in my opinion becomes a people problem it's one so, of the hardest yes. problems to
1: solve
0: I have a question <laughs> I have a question what happened to the theory about you know especially with reverse dieting with slowly introducing more calories into your dieting and essentially waiting for your body to adapt and to increase its basal metabolic rate. Is that still something that holds true or is that something that we've moved past yeah,
1: well, people like people were eating very very low calorie diets and people were like whoa we need to eat higher calorie diets yeah or, or girls who competed <laughs> yeah.
0: in bodybuilding and were in a in, a, in an energy deficit in a calorie deficit for long periods of time and then they had to bump it back up and do it really slowly like i was saying five grams at a time of carbs or whatever like i guess my question is is how rigid to adhering to these macros mm. do we have to be And is it even necessary? And is it true that we can actually create some sort of positive adaptation to the calories that we're consuming so as to increase our metabolic rate? Is that even a thing?
3: Yes, that their old building metabolic capacity. Um, I would say that it is a thing, but... like the old approach you're talking about of adding five grams, and I'm going to call it old because I don't think we should be doing it anymore, of adding five grams of carbs per week after getting to a point or as a way of quote-unquote rehabilitating or building the metabolism. I think we have a better understanding now about what aspect of of your total energy expenditure is actually adapting. Um, And the most adaptive component of TDE, total daily energy expenditure, is not your actual metabolic rate BMR or RMR that might change as much as 10 or 15 percent and for it to go down 10 or 15 percent you have to have destroyed yourself in that diet from when we look at the actual like that happens in bodybuilding contest competitors and like the biggest loser competitors those folks see that uh, 10 percent drop in, in BMR beyond what is predicted by their change in body composition and that probably has to do with like organ mass changes for the most part like their their liver shrunk from that diet, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. So they they took in a pretty large hit. But the part that adapts the most is actually your uh, resting energy expenditure, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, sometimes called NEAT, and that's basically how much you move and some of your energy conservation when doing light uh, intensity activities. That is actually the most adaptable component. So a lot of the times when we see someone who Uh, You know when they had a a better approach to dieting could diet on 1800 calories But when they just crushed themselves with the old contest prep diet like crash diet style They were on 1400 What's the deal there is that was probably the largest adaptive component So you can kind of push that up by bringing your calories up because there is a relationship between energy intake and the effects on NEAT But ultimately if you are super super lean you know, crushed yourself and you saw all this quote unquote metabolic adaptation, which was a little bit of, of change in BMR and a whole lot of a- a- adaptation down in NEAT and you walk your calories up, your NEAT is coming back, but you're probably still experiencing the majority of what we would call um, REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, the symptoms of, of not eating enough for what your requirements are. So that's probably, and that's another line of research which a lot of us in the fitness industry have been unaware of. We've been very focused on uh, like the metabolic adaptation, adaptive thermogenesis research, and how to get lean. But in the broader sector of sport, like if you look at the uh, like the IOC publications uh, on reds, uh, we come to understand that. Sorry, they've had like they've had like two
1: position papers on that, right? Because they're they're very concerned about
3: about the consequences
1: for the IOC when.
3: Mm-hmm. Like, if you look at the changes that are going on in gymnastics now, um, that, that, that's, that's a direct consequence of, of, of this awareness. And this stuff's been going on since the 2000s, where um, it started as kind of like the awareness of the female athlete triad. And now we're starting to understand that that, that is how it manifests in women and also includes um, uh, some elements of, of disordered eating that don't, don't necessarily have to go into uh, REDS. But that happens in, in any athlete, regardless of their, or their biological sex. It just manifests differently because we have you know different plumbing, right? What are the so, What are the symptoms? Yeah, so the symptoms are pretty much everything. So when you start to see um, the loss of menstrual cycle, uh, when you will see so declines in, in hormone levels, hormone concentrations related to reproductive reproductive health, you can start to see uh, negative impacts on the immune system. Um, you can start to see uh, losses of bone mineral density. Uh, you can start to see uh, poor sleep. Um, you can start to see uh, emotional regulation get worse uh, drops in in thyroid hormones so metabolic hormones go down uh, and it's basically the entire system trying to conserve energy so the underlying cause of reds is low energy availability and this is a concept that in the fitness industry we haven't really thought about energy availability we have just thought about deficit or surplus right so when we think about deficit or surplus we're kind of assuming that those numbers don't change and if they do change, it doesn't really really matter but if you're in a surplus or if you're at maintenance you fixed all the metabolic ad- adaptation problems, right? That's kind of the mindset, you know? But the, the question we have to ask ourselves is is how did we get our bodies to the point where it could maintain weight at 1800 calories? Sure, I'm at maintenance, but why? Well, it's because half of the lights are off in the building, right? The, my, my testes are no longer producing much in the way... Like, I couldn't have a kid right now. I, I am shivering. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really cold all the time. My, my, my temperature is lower. Um, I'm not producing a lot of thyroid hormone. There's basically all the quote-unquote non-essential processes in my body are dialed down as little as they can. Think of it like a, uh, when you have the Great Recession and a company's like barely holding on. It's fired everyone except one person in accounting, one person in HR, and they like they, they, they switched to motion sensor lights. Uh, they only work half hours. Everyone's getting furloughed. It's exactly what's going on during COVID, right? The company was cutting costs to stay afloat. Yeah, it's in maintenance, but you also fired 40% of your staff. Like, that's not great. No one's really happy. People are going broke. And that's essentially what's going on when you have dieted yourself down to essential levels of body fat, uh, and you're at maintenance calories, but you're only at maintenance calories because your body has adapted. So you can start walking your, your food back up, and you might get to a point where you reverse to some of that. But if we look at some of the signaling that goes on that is related to uh, when does our body see itself as sufficiently fed, a lot of it does have to do with how much you're eating relative to your activity. But there's also like a 0.85 correlation between leptin and body fat percentage. So if you are... The old reverse dieting strategy was basically, it's a win if I stay nearly shredded but eat like 300 more grams of carbs. Like that's the the poster boy or girl of a successful reverse diet is I'm still shredded but I get to eat all the food. Ironically, you only care about being able to eat all the food because you're shredded. Like if you were 20 pounds heavier, you wouldn't care how many grams of carbs you're eating because you're not obsessed with food. So it's this self-perpetuating cycle of like all of a sudden I'm no longer focused on gaining like bicep muscle thickness. I'm focused on gaining... Like Pop-Tarts, you know, like this is this is the goal now. It's to be shredded, not have a functioning like uh, reproductive hormone cycle, but still eat, but get to eat a lot of food and, and then post pictures on Instagram of food like you're no longer bodybuilding. Now you're just maximizing your eating disorder. So I think that's where we got to, um, unfortunately. And the reality is, is that until when you when you get to a weight reduced state as a bodybuilder, when let's say you're you're 10 percent below where you started uh, you're you know 90 kilos and now you're you're 81. Until you get back up to 90 ish, you're going to have symptoms of reds. You're going to have some of these things because you're just too too damn lean. Um, so I think for each person, you need to find that point where they're not in a state of low energy availability, and the requisite body composition that goes along with that will enable them to find that homeostasis. and And that's where they need to at least be at in the off season or for you know a strength athlete that's probably where they wanna hang out at the lowest before they then water cut to compete. And if they're trying to go like two steps down, those are the strength athletes that often burn out, uh, as we've often seen, as they're trying to be, like they're always shredded on the platform and that they can only compete really reliably once or twice a year, because they have to be in that dieting state.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating.
3: Have you told people
1: to take time off? Because you know, this is the kind of thing that takes you know, a much longer time than people expect. And I know, like the IOC papers generally say, oh, the solution is educating sport coaches about the signs of Reds because nobody understands the the, the signs and presentations. It's not three symptoms, and, you know. You'll probably have you know a presentation before you get you know before something gets fractured, and then you come in for a stress fracture that's unexplained. And they're like, oh, you have no bones, and you know um, you probably should eat more. Um, but where I get hung up is it's hard for people, for nutrition coaches, for trainers to 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 recognize that to recognize scope and limitations and then intervene on behalf of the health of an athlete and their longevity in the sport because at a certain point is you can't only compete twice a year shredded you know if you, that you only have so many so many years of that right yeah and then you you stunt people's potential so it's like how do you have the hard conversation of of changing the course of someone's you know career
3: yeah and it is a hard conversation And a lot of the times, the hard conversations, I would say, are forced upon coaches because the structure of the sport needs to change and it hasn't. Um, And we see parallels to this all the time. Like, So, for example, um, it took wrestlers dying of dehydration in the 90s before they went, okay, we need to get a minimum hydration standard or we're going to see more deaths in the sport. Um, Yeah, that might have changed some things in terms of the competitive environment. But ultimately, that was a net win in wrestling to have... Uh, a different time frame in wrestling, and and you'll see like the two hour weigh-in uh, is is that that's an IPF that that was a direct consequence of seeing that happening in wrestling back in the '90s. Um, so the structure of the sports have to be willing to change, and then we start to see different opportunities because we're we're operating in a very constrained system. So like right now, there's a huge change going on in gymnastics, and now we're starting to see gymnasts with slightly different bodies to traditional and at older ages who are still competitive. And we start to realize like, oh, we're, we're, was it really that we need children to be competitive in gymnastics or are we forcing that on them because that's the way the coaching system has been? So like that's one example. Um, another example is so in bodybuilding, um, I, I often struggle because the only way to really do it, in my opinion, with the current conditioning standard is to compete like every other year to have that time to recover. Uh, how do you tell a world champion, like, don't defend your title this year? You know, I do, but they're not always necessarily going to listen. Um, like, we, there's a, n- another structural issue. And, and as much as I, you know, shout out to to Bob Bell and Tina and the heads of the WNBF um, and the other national organizations, they typically have a rule that once you get your pro card, you need to compete within a year uh, at the pro level to keep it. But almost every person who gets their pro card in natural bodybuilding is like, oh no, I need to get bigger. And I also just crush myself to get to my best and I need time off. So it's it's and, and they often have a rule like you need to compete every at least every two years to keep your card. So it's this it's this push and pull between the sport having a certain organizational structure and having a certain, you know, bottom line realistically they need they need to make because it's not like natural bodybuilding is a money maker <laughs> where they need to have a certain amount of show attendance and and if you have ever been to a bodybuilding show like everyone in the in the audience is like the family of the people on stage. So like if you're buying tickets, you're you're probably competing later that evening or that's your brother or or son or something like that. So it's like it, it it's difficult to keep the sport alive. So I get it. You can't have everyone competing on like a a 3-year cycle, right? And that's just not that fun. So, you know, Trying to bargain with your athletes and help them think about the big picture is the conversation. So you're 100% right. And the the tact I normally take is that I want them to be in the driver's seat of their athletic career. So I kind of walk them through scenarios and I share things that I've seen. It's like, you know, I have had athletes who are like, I want to compete every year. I'm all about this. I'm all about this. And they burn out in five years. They leave the sport in their 20s. Like I ask them, do you see yourself competing in this sport in your 30s? And they're like, of course, I love this sport. And I'm like... Well, I don't know that that's going to happen with your current trajectory. So let's think about sporting success from a few feet back. Let's 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 think about this as: Do you want to compete as a master's? Like, do you want do you want to have ten years to improve, or do you want to, you know, like shine bright and then burn out? Like, it's 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 ultimately your choice. But I just want you to be have informed consent before you make that choice
0: yeah absolutely it's it's a difficult choice to make i mean it's one that i feel like i'm almost made a mistake in powerlifting. i came out of the gate so hot competing so frequently i was doing four to six powerlifting meets a year plus all the exhibition lifting and stuff and at that point you know when you're young when you're in your early 20s you think you're indestructible invincible and that that all the horror stories that you hear from dieting and from lifting heavy those are not gonna happen to you kind of thing and uh you know turns out <laughs> <laughs> it does happen to you
3: you also didn't hold back it wasn't like you're like you know what i'll just pull a 9 rpe in the animal cage you're like i'm going to get this 500 <laughs> yeah. So. yeah
0: yeah i pushed yeah. and pushed hard but it was worth it i think for me yeah what um what are some closing questions i went through all of mine so if you guys have one more we have time for
4: i one. have a question but it's not so much of closing um but in terms of considerations of volume because the general in the muscle um, strength pyramid is volume considerations of 10 to 20 sets. Let's just say that's in, in terms of generalization. But now we're seeing more type of research that is considered or more, especially with strength strength um, training, is lower RP sets, especially for strength, because they show the strength stimulus more. We're getting um, higher force production or early on in those in in Mm. the first few reps whereas it drops off later on and how does that relate to volume because because we're doing um, essentially we're doing lower RP sets so we can essentially do more sets and does that change in terms of whether you're training for strength hypertrophy so if you're training for hypertrophy it might be like 10 to 20 because you're going to failure whereas now strength it might be you can do 30 sets because you're not
3: accumulating as much fatigue because you're doing more lower RP work yeah, that's so. You guys got another forty-five minutes? No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just there. getting
4: more of your thought, your thoughts on it. Yeah, I <laughs> no, know. I'll give you the was, quick hits. It's not really so a closing it's, thought.
3: It's 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 a good question because I think uh, there's actually a um, a PhD student uh, colloquially called PAC. His actual name is Patroclos Androlakis Korakakis, and he is a uh, a Greek uh, PhD student living in the UK. Uh, towards the end of his PhD. And he's done a lot of really interesting work with James Steele on the minimum effective dose to produce meaningful gains in power lifters. So that's, that's pretty cool. And that's a very interesting question of, well, okay, what's the least amount I need to do to make gains? Most people, like they have an emotional reaction in our community when you could say that, like, why would you do that? You know, like, but I think, If you could think about the times when you are burned out, nursing an injury, maybe you have a shoulder injury, so you can't really bench that much. Like what's the least amount of benching I can do without backsliding or maybe even making a little bit of progress? I've found that's actually been a very relevant question multiple times in my career and for many of my lifters. And the question of what's the minimum effective dose heavily depends on what is the key variable that produces progress in the thing I'm interested in. So for strength, the data would now suggest that volume is a minor player compared to load. Um, we have data to suggest that, you know, so for example, where that 10 to 20 came from in, in my books is based upon a meta analysis from Schoenfeld showing like 10 plus sets tends to cause greater hypertrophy than a five to nine versus one to four and kind of a stepwise, but diminishing fashion. And we have similar, but not nearly as strong data in strength. So there's a kind of like a sister meta-analysis to that one that Schoenfeld did by Ralston. And Ralston had the same breakpoints. But they found that you didn't actually get a significant difference between these groups until you compared 1 to 4 to like 12+. plus. So, and it, it wasn't like the Schoenfeld one where you got like 60%, 80%, 100%. It was like 83% and then like another 17% if you jumped all the way up. So this is, this is a very different return on investment. Like if I do... 11 more sets, I'll get 10% more gains. That's a little different to saying, hey, if I do five more sets, I'll get 30% more gains, right? So I think people need to consider like, well, what's the likelihood that I'll actually beat the other version of myself on this alternate low volume dimension before I get hurt? And I think as we've often seen from like the the version 1 DUP era, not very good likelihood. A lot of people got spit out and chewed up um, in the other order. Um, so the kind of what we come to is like, all right, well, how much, how much intensity do we need to get that, that specific response? How much specificity do we need of movement pattern? And then what frequency and volume of that do we need to kind of improve? So the, what I've been experimenting with and landing on and what I recommend these days is, all right, well, we should probably have singles that are sufficiently heavy all the time. And then we can do less specific volume work that should be the supportive structure of that stuff. So what I've kind of landed on is some type of periodization structure where we're doing like a couple of singles a week and like a five to six RPE when you're far out from competition, recovering maybe from last season, doing mostly hypertrophy work, non-specific stuff. And then as you get closer to competition, that goes from one to two to two to three, to maybe even three to four times a week. And those RPEs go from like five to six to six to seven to seven to eight to eventually you're hitting some maxes in the last, you know, couple couple comp cycles as you get close to when guess what? You're going to be trying to do maxes. So, uh, and then the amount of time devoted to like back offsets and and more specific variations increases as you do less and less hypertrophy and general work. And, you know, that's uh, that's a different take on the traditional model of where you just see kind of reps just decline, sets stay roughly the same, and RPE just go up. And that of course still works. But the question is, is, you know, at what cost and how do I hold on to those prior adaptations? Um, So I I think it's a very interesting field of study because if we don't know what the minimum effective dose is, it makes it very difficult to plan your periodization cycles when you're further from competition or when you have an injury or when you have a limitation on how often you can do a specific variation of a movement. Like most powerlifters I know, even at a high level, don't just have the freedom to go, well, I could bench squat and deadlift five days a week like something that's a hip problem or, or something. Something becomes the barrier beyond just like, oh, I didn't make as good of strength gains, you know? So then you have to have some other tools to figure out where is the the friction points and what can you do and then what's the alternative? Mm-hmm.
1: That strikes me as a more answerable question than what's the maximum effective dose yes. too, as well. It is, right. absolutely. And I think a lot, of, a lot of that, you know, evidence-based um, training literature is about asking the right question, Um right? I'm sure you deal with a lot of students who have a hard time formulating the right question to dedicate five years of their life to. You know, you know, <laughs> you know what?
0: As um, I think the minimum effective dose, especially to getting stronger, is a lot less than whatever we think it is. I think as athletes, we're wired to want to do more always. We have this kind of no pain, no gain mentality, and I'm the hardest worker in the room kind of thing. But When it comes to powerlifting, it's something that I always say, less is more. You know, I was part of that group of people who was set on doing two training sessions a day, you know, lifting heavy six days a week, benching heavy, squatting heavy, deadlifting heavy. And obviously I learned the hard way, but I've, you know, I've gone through periods where either due to injury or just time constraints, where I've been able to either maintain or or slightly improve uh, my strength doing half of the amount of work that I was doing Mm -hmm. and feeling a lot better. So I think that minimum effective dose is a lot lower than most people would think.
3: 100%. And it's a a hard conversation to have because as soon as you start to have it, someone freaks out and starts yelling at their, uh, their YouTube channel audience about low RPE and how we're all just wussies. And it's like, well, that's not really what I'm saying, but okay. As long as you can get some clickbait. So, yeah
0: um before i leave you eric what um i'm just curious actually for myself but i'm sure that our listeners are too what's the book that you gift out the most
3: oh man that's a tough one i so this is a little cliche but the uh, paulo Coelho's the alchemist i I really like that's a great one about just kind of like personal journey and finding your own way Um, that was given to me as a gift and i have subsequently also gifted that and then another one for, for my more nerdy friends or people is uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, because I think it's, it's a really good one that helps you kind of see your own cognitive biases and, and give some tools on how to work around them.
1: What's what's interesting is like
0: yo, I couldn't get through that one.
1: Yeah, what's also interesting is there's some great principles in there, but some of the research is like very hotly contested because psychology has that huge reproducibility problem. It's
3: actually only one chapter that's hotly contested, and it, it's but but the rest of them are, are st- still hold up pretty well. Yeah, and to Daniel Kahneman's uh, credit, <clears throat> if you search uh, about some of that, the studies that haven't reproduced, and I want to say it's like chapter 16. I have it right. And I'm not I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole. He actually responds in that blog post. He's like, no, you're 100% right. This is a great example, ironically, of how you know my cognitive biases enabled me to to, to, to talk about this data that hadn't yet been reproduced. And I agree with you. However, I think about 90% of the book still holds up. So yeah, it's interesting.
1: That it isn't even like there's like a meta lesson in that book about cognitive bias, which is so good. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric, for your time. I appreciate you a ton. If you're ever in Miami, if you guys ever get freed from your lockdown, you got a place to train and hang.
3: I can't wait to see you in 2030.
0: (laughs) At this rate? Yeah, man. Maybe. Maybe 2030. Uh,
3: No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. No, thanks so much.